Hi, this is Sonia Walger, and welcome to Bookish, my podcast where I talk to interesting people about the five books that have shaped them most. My guest this episode is the poet Robin Cost Lewis, best known for her book Voyage of the Sable Venus, winner of the National Book Award for Poetry. She obtained an MFA from NYU and attended graduate school at Harvard Divinity School, where she received a master's degree in Sanskrit and comparative religious literature. Lewis has been a professor at Wheaton, Hunter College, Hampshire College, and NYU. She is in the PhD program at USC, where she has a fellowship in poetry and visual studies. In April of this year, Mayor Eric Garcetti named her the new Poet Laureate of Los Angeles. I devoured Voyage of the Sable Venus when it came out, so it was a huge honor to interview her at her home in L.A., I should also note that in my excitement, I made a mistaken claim that she was the first guest to have picked an author of colour. This is not true, as Jenny Kona had picked Americana by Nigerian author Chimimanda Ngozi Andichie. Okay, onwards to the interview. So are you a writer secretly underneath it all? Yeah. I thought so. A little bit. What do you like um, to write? Do you I, write? Or I do. do, you, do you want I do to write? write? No, I do write. I write, I write all the time. I write, um, well... What do I write? I write short stories and then I write screenplays. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, there's a book in there somewhere, but I, 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 I'm too... I love great literature too much mm-hmm. to write a shitty book. Yeah. So it's just... So you're a real writer. I just... Am like, well, yeah, I just don't want to do it till, it till and ever if that's ready to come and it may yeah. never happen. But yeah. in the meantime... What I really love is reading, which is how this podcast was born. That's so amazing. Yeah, I just felt like... In England, there's this wonderful um, radio show called Desert Island Discs, and it's been around since about the 1930s. What's this called? Desert Island Discs. Oh, yes, of course. Do you know it? Yeah, it's a sort Uh of institution, and... um, and it's it's just this lovely thing, and you pick seven records, and they're the records you would take to Desert Island. Exactly. And so I came up with this, thinking... I don't want to do seven, I want to pick five, and I want to pick the five books. I, I wanted to do a podcast around books, and I just, mm-hmm. Michael Silverblatt does a lovely job, mm-hmm. but I don't need another book where I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not interested in reviewing books. I'm not interested in any of that. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in how books intersect with people's mm-hmm. lives, mm-hmm. really. That's fantastic. And so, and so this was how this was born, was, you know, pick the five books that have shaped you most rather mm-hmm. than your five favourite, because it so seems great. a more... Mm-hmm. Um, sort of acute way to, mm-hmm. to talk about mm-hmm. to talk about them to talk about them in the way that I want to mm-hmm. talk about them which mm-hmm. is this intersection mm-hmm. that I'm really interested in mm-hmm. so um, so this was how it sort of it came about and then I've been doing season one and this is um, you're my final guest this which I'm fantastic. so I cannot tell you how honoured I am to have you I really mean oh, it I promise you I'm like oh, I got when Nancy told me that you you would be oh, my guest I got sort of chills about it when so, Nancy told you what that you would that you would you know that Danzy would put us in touch oh, and that yeah. you could be my guest no, this was, no. this it's, was you know it's big. always an honour especially for women doing work in the arts I'm always there for it yeah well you know? thank you I really really appreciate it, yeah, especially in this climate, it's really important. Yeah, I think so too, and I think it's important to you know. I mean, there were many reasons that I'm recording by the way, oh, okay. so we can just but, okay. but we just sure. chat the whole point. Sure, is sure. This, is yeah. a, this is just a free sure. conversation. Um, you know, one of the 
one of the things that I was so thrilled about is that because this is season one, it's been largely friends and friends of friends. That's that I've great. Done, which has kept it fairly industry-centric, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is not really my preference. Yeah. I want to widen this as much as possible, mm-hmm. but just in the, in the interest of getting it off the ground, it's yeah. been like keeping yeah. in that. So you're my first author. You're my first writer that oh, I've had on the fantastic. show. Which I am so delighted about because uh-huh. I did not want this to be just... Well, I mean, I've had... Uh, you know, political oh, people, and I've had chemistry. I see it better now. I've yeah. wanted to have um, yeah. as wide a gamut of people mm-hmm. as I can come up mm-hmm. with. In the long term, what I want, I want to be able to interview the UPS guy and exactly. sit him down and ask him what his exactly. books are. But just in the interest of getting people to the show mm-hmm. and driving people towards mm-hmm. it, I've had to sort of skew towards more famous yeah, yeah, yeah. people. Um, down the line, I foresee it being, as I say, wider. But the main thing was the the thrill of having you, a poet, a woman, an African-American, mm-hmm. to, to have all of this yeah. here in front of me to talk yeah. to just feels like a, a huge coup. And then not to mention that Voyage of the Sable Venus is truly one of my favourite volumes mm-hmm. of verse. I've picked Thank up you. in so long. Thank like I said, you. I think I wrote to you in my email, like, I've lost track of how many times I've bought this oh for God. friends. So it's... It's really something. And then I've had to sort of resist when I was... When I was researching your books, I had to... And, and, you know, reading about you and things, I had to really fight the urge to keep going back to your poems and feeling like, yeah, but I know this bit about her mm-hmm. because the mm-hmm. because the the intimacy and the, and the feeling of biography, rightly or wrongly, that your, that your poems have is so intense that I had to really, like, pull back and go, no, let, let Robin tell you who she is <laughs> and what her life was rather than trying to extrapolate it yeah. from her poems. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's, um, let's start with your first... What, you gave me five books. Mm-hmm. You put them in the order that they, that they mattered to you. Mm-hmm. So I, the first one on your list was the story of Ferdinand, yeah. which is 19, published in 1936 by Munro Leaf. Yeah. Tell me why this book. Um, I remember reading it as a little girl. And on the surface, right, Ferdinand is a classic children's book. Everybody knows that Ferdinand doesn't want to play, even though he's this big, big, big bull and he can kick everybody's butt. He'd rather stay under the trees and smell the flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, so initially, as a little girl, it spoke to me that you know Ferdinand as a protagonist seems to me to be this doorway into which I could enter. Um, he was this doorway into which I could enter because I like to stay inside mm-hmm. and read. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was a tomboy with my sister, there was an ongoing, long eight-year war in our family. The boys between the girls, the two brothers between the two sisters. Where do you fall in the family? I'm the baby. Uh-huh. And um, my sister and I waged a fantastic effort. Um, and my sister and was the, the most ultimate tomboy of all, hmm. all history. Um, I... I always wanted to be inside, mm. even though I would like go out and you know take one for the team and mm-hmm. fight and and plot. Ultimately, I was inside reading books, mm-hmm. and so I think early on that book validated that it was okay to be quiet. <gasps> I am I have a very gregarious, which is a nice way of saying I'm very loud <laughs> personality, and I like that. I like loud cultures. I like loud people. I like all of that, but ultimately. You know, I'm inside and I cannot speak for weeks and be very happy. So that was the first time that I saw that. Um, 
kind of performed in a in a narrative, and then it wasn't until later that I um, realized that it was a book about pacifism and nonviolence, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> really written for that very reason, um, and felt even more grateful for it. I grew up in a very pacifist family um, during the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. and so. It remains for me this incredible model. I think about it all the time. I pulled it out um, for you. It remains for me this kind of both aesthetic and um, kind of political ideology Mm. that you don't have to, regardless of how much power you have, you don't have to use it in a particular way. Do you remember when you discovered that it was an allegory? I was in college. Uh Uh And... I don't know why I thought about it, but it was during the 80s, it was during the culture wars, and I don't know, like, books stay with me, Mm. you know, really good ones, Mm -hmm. hopefully, Mm -hmm. I think that's what they're supposed to do, and so inevitably, some character will trot out of my psyche Mm. onto, like, my conscious stage Mm -hmm. and go, hi, this book can help you, this story can help you, and I remember just thinking in college, a big, you know, kind of epiphany that, oh my God, Ferdinand was a pacifist text. <laughs> how amazing! But no, how you know, wonderful! Because but wh- that's when books are really good. You you go yeah. back to them decade I, after decade after decade, and yeah. they change, and you see more. And hopefully, you know, that's 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 one of the magical things about books we don't talk enough about. Mm-hmm. I think uh, writers talk about it a lot that mm-hmm. books change over the year. One book can become ten mm-hmm. over. 60 years mm. it's interesting it's something that we've, we've it's been coming up a lot in the podcast is is um revisiting books and mm. revisiting your new old slash new iterations of yourself yeah as you absolutely as you come to come to them and realizing absolutely. who you were and what's sloughed away and mm-hmm. what's important now that wasn't important right I surprised myself when I said told you Ferdinand. Did you? Yeah. Was it the first one that came to you when Absolutely. I asked you? Really? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And I don't think about it. I mean, I think about it in this kind of sentimental way. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Of course. But it actually is a text that will stay with me my whole life. And there's a great page. I joke with my mom um, that I was going to get a tattoo of it for uh, to honor her. It says, even though... His mother was just a cow. <laughs> she left him alone to something, you know. And it describes my relationship with my mother very beautifully. Is like, she just a cow? Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. Um, but she's also extraordinarily supportive. Mm. She was kind of this magical mother to us in that, you know, at a time when... I think parenting was so much about uh, indoctrination. In the 60s, she was one of the first mothers in the neighborhood to kind of try to change that and let children just roam. And, Mm. you know, our house was always filled. Literally, the doors were always unlocked, and there was always, like, 10 kids in our house running around screaming. Um, And so there's... there's, That's also in in me. Yeah. Did she... Is she who instilled the love of books, or was that your father, or was that just in the Both. house? They, they were avid uh, newspaper people. Huh. Avid. You know that working class, everybody reads a newspaper sure. from cover to cover every single day, that mm-hmm. practice, mm-hmm. that I think is a lost art. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they were those people. Mm-hmm. And so inevitably, my mother still, she's had a subscription to the LA Times for like probably five decades now, wow. every single day. And then the Los Angeles Sentinel, which is the longest running African-American newspaper in this country. Wow. She's still a subscriber. Whenever I think it's weekly. Uh-huh. Um, and then they got one other paper, I don't remember. But in any case, uh, every night in bed, um, they would each have a newspaper. And so speaking of uh, alternative pedagogies and parenting, every one of us slept with our parents until we were like 12. Uh-huh. You know, my sister hates me still to this day because she said, because I was born, she had to get kicked out <laughs> earlier than everyone else. But that was a big deal. I mean, even now they're telling parents don't sleep with their children, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom, she was just aghast, mm-hmm. you know. She just knew intuitively that our nervous systems needed to be close to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so in any case, they were always reading, and Mom said that I used to try to take papers and read with them, mm-hmm. and that they would be upside down and all this stuff when I was like two. <clears throat> but excuse me, so I don't know. They were just always reading and always talking. Mm-hmm. It's different. It's different for me now that I'm a parent because I actually showed my son from the news right. completely. Mm-hmm. And it's not that the news is more atrocious. It just isn't. I know we like to believe it is, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was the 1960s we're talking about. Yeah. Both domestically and internationally, the world was on fire. It still is. Um, But they talked about those things in front of us all the time. And did you, do you remember tuning it out or engaging or did you feel... Well, you, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot recently because I used to dream of the KKK. Did you? Oh, it was horrible. Every night I would wake up. Just, that was the boogeyman? Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. the KKK was the boogeyman. And uh, they were always coming. I, we lived in a subdivision once we left Compton uh, where you can only get in two ways. And I, my, in my nightmare, they had blocked both the ways and we couldn't wow. get out. Um I, I, I had that dream so many times, I can't even mm. tell you. So I think the information did get in. Mm. Um, my parents weren't directly talking about the Klan to us, mm-hmm. um, except to tell us stories about Louisiana. Which is back where they in the both day. came they from. They both were from New Orleans. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, that kind of stuff filtered in. But then, you know, Tom Metzger ran, who's a grand dragon of the KKK, ran for the mayor of San Diego fully hooded um, on the campaign trail. He would take to the podium with his... This is in what year? Oh, if I remember, it had to be like early 70s or late 60s. Yeah. So, I mean, I was having nightmares because it was actually happening. Because it was happening, right. Right. And I think seeing all the clan out again and feeling so authorized to be so is why all the stuff is kind of... Floating around floating for around, me. Right. And so pre- shielding your son from this feels conscious now, or has it been just something you th- feel you've done since he, since he's always been around? Well, I think since he's born, he's because nine. he's nine. Yeah. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, I couldn't bear for him to know that he was being haunted by the police departments in this country. Right. I couldn't bear for him mm-hmm. to have that knowledge. He'll know soon enough. Mm-hmm. And a lot of friends were like, are you going to this march? Are you going to this rally? And I was like, no, I'm not going. I'm a single mom. I'm not taking my son to a rally about black boys being killed. Mm-hmm. And they would say, well, you have to. And I would say, well, are you telling your white friends that? Are you telling your white friends that you have to take, that they have to take their boys to a rally to educate them about black boys being murdered by the state? Yeah. 
And if you're not telling everyone that, then why are you targeting my son right. to have that information, in my opinion, prematurely? Mm-hmm. I want him to be as magical and open as he can possibly be until he finds out that he is one of the most aboard bodies in our nation. Yeah. Do you know? I do. I'm, I'm reminded of that Tiny Coates book. I'm mm-hmm. blanking on the name. The, the letter uh, to his son. Yeah. Uh, where he talks about exactly this, about knowing that the talk has to come. Right. And at what point do we, or does right. he take right. it? And as you rightly say, his, his point is, why are we not all having the talk? Right. Why am I having it? That's right. And it's, it's, um, it's a profound point. It really, really is. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we all should have the talk. Yeah. <laughs> So that's a very verbose way to say that uh, one of the things I remember most about my parents and these newspapers, right? I have a poem in my book, uh, Red All Over, mm. and the title comes from my father telling that joke, what's black and white and red all over, the newspaper, <laughs> ha, 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 he's a very jolly guy. But he would also then say this word in Creole, which meant it's the derogatory term for black people, and he would say, you know, but it's also read all over from the blood of black people, mm. right? Literally, the newspaper is stained with black death, mm. you know? And so my relationship to reading and, and history in my family is also a relationship to knowing that this was the United States of America, which for me and for anybody who's paying attention means that it's a history steeped in blood. Yeah. You know, and so Ferdinand was like that first text that said, "No, no, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to, you don't have to play by those rules." Mm-hmm. Um, and then later, you know, and this is at the same time when Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. you know, all these people were being assassinated, and and so it was a tremendous kind of text to eat whole, mm-hmm. you know, and keep in my psyche. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I, I, obviously it's still in there because I'm talking to you about mm-hmm. it. And, and so it means a great deal, yeah. you know. And I like its simplicity. Yeah. That it's a ch- children's book. I think the children's book do clearly um, enormous work. Yeah. And can, can be that text that, you know, you carry with you all yeah. the time. It's interesting, isn't it, to think what gets seeded by these seemingly such simple fables as, as this is, and, and then what takes root and what Absolutely. oak tree starts emerging as a as a foundation of that. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded in um, one of your poems towards the end. I sorry, I forget the title, it's but okay. you talk about um, the the place that you this um, subdivision that you grew up in mm-hmm. and the farms mm-hmm. and that yes. the third farm was yes. turned into a library or that you yes. you know and you, you talk about it being no bigger than a four car garage or right. that you but what what did you know about what that was like right. anyway um, was that a real thing was that do you remember the Absolutely. library the library was still standing really yeah. and so how old were you do you remember when the library came. I don't know. Single digits for sure. Uh-huh. Um, probably somewhere between four and eight. No, had to be older. Six and nine, right. probably. You talk about yeah. this lovely thing of getting the library card. Yes. And that it's your name is in it and it's types. Yes. And I feel off the page that, like, um, legitimacy of seeing Absolutely. one's name in types. Right. It's such a moment. Right. Yeah. I have a friend who's Vietnamese, a uh, brilliant novelist, uh, Thuy Lay, 
Uh, she wrote the book The Gangster We're All Looking For that rocked the whole world. And uh, she and I, we have this conversation about forms, filling out forms, uh-huh. right? <laughs> Being the children. She's a children of immigrants. And, uh-huh. you know, my family is a great migration and how we had to, like, read the forms and translate the forms. Or she literally had to translate the forms. I had to culturally translate the forms right. for my parents. Right. Right. To tell them what they meant. And they were always these kinds of objects of power in the state and they create right. incredible anxiety sure. whenever a form came yes. home yeah. that needed to be filled out or if we had to go somewhere and fill out a form you know um and so that library card was official yeah you know it was like there i am yeah and there's my name and it's typed yeah. right because it's the whole history of typewriters i know typewriters were invented the century before but i'm <laughs> yeah. saying yeah you know that's the other thing but see that that's the whole point you know, typewriters have been in Central before, but how long does it take to reach poor people? Right, sure. You know, how long does it take to reach people who are in the middle of sprawl and they don't know it, mm-hmm. right? Sure. And so to have my, to see my name, a uh, typewriter, I was trying, you know, it's really not about me. I don't care. The kind of uh, specific autobiography is only interesting to me as far as it can perform um, history sure. on the page. Yeah. And so that's why... Um, those kinds of stories are in my book, yeah. you know, because I wanted people to think that's right, you know, they own, have their own experiences about forms, power, legitimacy, as yeah. you say, you know. Yeah, or even even just that, even just to be, more, you know, more sort of reductive about it, that that childhood moment of realizing, oh, I exist. Absolutely. I exist beyond. I'm a person. Right, and not yeah. just within the hierarchy of my family or whatever that exactly. dynamic is. And but I can take home a book. Yeah. That was... Amazing. Was it? Was that a oh huge God. thing? Oh my God! Do you know what's in that building? Uh huh. Right? That's all the information, right? This is how one fills, at least how I fill it. Sure. All the information in the world right. is in this building. Yeah. And I now have access to yeah. it. There's no one saying no. There's no one saying you can't because you're a girl. There's no one saying you can't because you're, at that time, Negro. There's no one saying you can't because you're the youngest, you're not tall enough, you're not. There's no one saying no. Right. It was it was in a lot of ways my first huge yes to my kind of intellectual passion. Right. And to be told yes, you can be hungry, uh-huh. intellectually like starving, uh-huh. and we're gonna feed you. Were you allowed That's to an be amazing thing? It's an amazing thing. Were you allowed to be as voracious as you wanted to be in there? I mean, versus at home, or was that just encouraged universally? Oh, I think I think it was encouraged universally in that. I mean, it's funny to talk about it universally because right. it's like such a small sure. postage stamp area. No, I love it. Trust me. I'm like, <laughs> it is the universe. Um, I think it was universally because you see, the library and the stores were all staffed by black people, right? Right, and everybody was in it together, mm. and we all knew we were like trying to survive mm. together. The LAPD at the time was, I mean, you can't believe the heinous, Mm. I can't, I mean, it just strikes me, we were shot at all the time, Mm. we were abused all the time, we were beaten up all the time, we were targeted all the time, they were the Klan, we knew they were the Klan, they weren't hiding that they were the Klan, right, right? I mean, if Tom Metzger is stomping the campaign trail on a hood, and he's the Grand Dragon, what do the police need to hide for, right, right? And so the librarian 
was as happy that I was getting a library card right. than I was. It's like, right. you know, kind of like this grandmotherly, that's right, baby. Mm. Now get to reading. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Nikki Finney, when she won the National Book Award uh, in her acceptance speech, told this fantastic story about, and I'm not going to get it correct, but I, I, I think so many people, so many black people, children have the same experience at the time. We're from the same generation where, you know, she checked out a book, read it, checked out a book, read it, and kept going on and on and on in the English literature section. And she read all the books, mm. right? And then she tells a librarian... You know, basically, I'm done. I'm done. Not, not, not in an arrogant way, but, you know, kind of. Mm-hmm. You know, proud. Finished. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and the librarian goes, did you read all of them? And she goes, yes. And then the librarian goes, in the entire library? <laughs> right. <laughs> there was kind of that expectation that we would read everything. Right. Right. Because books were so, at the time, they still are, but they were so precious. Yeah. Right? That... You couldn't afford to buy them all. Right. So the fact that you could go in and get them were, I mean, that was just the greatest thing that could have happened. Mm-hmm. The other thing about my parents that I meant to say is that I still don't know how they did it, but they bought me so many books. Really? So many books. Now, specifically for you, you went for to me. the hand I, Oh, please. My, my brothers and sisters were outside playing. Oh, really? So oh, they to this, day, to this just... day, they're like, you're such a bookworm. You know, <laughs> they, they just tease me so much when my book came out. They're like, of course you wrote a book. What else are you going to do? You're a bookworm. I mean, all they do is tease me. They're like, you're so boring still to this day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. just insanely proud. To no, know, yeah, they are. They are. Imagine. Yeah. They can't believe poetry paid off. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah, well, let's, you know. I mean, you laugh, but let's make no, let's not make no. light of that. That's ex- no. it's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. It is. It truly yeah. is. And that I get to teach literature, that's insane. It's wonderful. You know, they didn't even, I mean, we didn't even, the, the, the high school counselors didn't even talk to us about college. Really? Never. Never. Really? It was no. just, no. High it was school. understood that we were not going to college. Uh-huh. Period. Right, and and you've been to so you have been and taught at so many universities. I've yeah. lost track. You went to New York University. Was that where you? Yes, went? for poetry. I did my master's of fine arts for poetry at NYU, and then I did a, a master's of theological studies because I love myths at Harvard University in wow. Sanskrit and in compared Sanskrit, to religious right? literature. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So. so I'm, I'm sort of going off track here, but we can it's tie okay. it back to a book. Sure. If there is a book that you oh sure, to of that course one. there is. It's all about books. <laughs> the whole thing is about books. Tell me which is the, which is the next one for you that matters that that that, that shaped that you felt was it? Um, the, is it in, did I tell you? You, 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 you put them in an order, but which is always usually the one. Can I? Can you tell me? You what sure? It is? I have po- the poetry of the Negro or the Black Stallion, which whichever you come. Oh, I think it's the poetry of the Negro, edited by Arna Bonton and Langston Hughes, which by came, far. Came out in 1949, and just for the listeners, the poetry of the Negro is an anthology which ranges from 1746 to 1949, which is a pretty huge span. Go ahead, Sonia. That is an amazing observation on your part, and it says a lot. I was going to say I can talk about this for hours, and I won't, but it's an amazing observation on your part because it says so much that that, because it was published in the 30s, publishers at the time were not going to... um, you know, publish a book on modernist poetry by the Negro or 18th century poetry by the Negro. Mm -hmm. They weren't going to spend that much money on a text, right? right? So that's why it spans really two centuries. Mm -hmm. Um, And now 
in the last, I would say, two, three decades, more and more anthologies are starting to come out. Not enough. Mm-hmm. You know, they need, the publishing industry and publishers need to do more, mm-hmm. without doubt, about all kinds of anthologies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know anthologies are problematic politically, people say, and they are, but nevertheless, they need to be done, I think. Um, I agree. Yeah. I always, anthologies, I, always, I think it's interesting... Um, I remember reading a long time ago, but there's a beautiful English anthology that's very, very old and very Mm. dated called Other Men's Flowers, which Mm. is an anthology largely of war poetry. Mm. And um, the thing I love about it most is that colonial and problematic as it might be is the the title because Mm -hmm. it it takes you back to what anthology Mm -hmm. means. Right, exactly. And for that reason, it seems to me that anthologies are important. Mm-hmm. However, as long as we recognize that there has been choice and right. that this Absolutely. is not a natural confluence right. of poems right. or, or selection of, of, right. of um, text, that, there's, uh, uh, that there is agency at work in right. creating this. Absolutely. Um, but anyway, that's... No, absolutely. no that's fantastic. That. So uh, that book was around... Our house, I don't know where it came from, but I remember opening it mm. and being totally amazed. Mm. Because, you know, there's that... I wonder if readers have other experiences that they could kind of um, drop into the slot, right? Mm-hmm. You would go to school and we'd be reading literature wherein we never saw much... I hate the word diversity... Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean diversity of any kind. Right. So right. It was being, all. It was the canon. It was white, dead white men. Yes, but it was also Leave It to Beaver. Like we weren't reading Eudora Welty. Uh huh. We weren't reading Flattery O'Connor, who uh-huh. are the baddest white girl writers to have ever walked the sure. face of the earth. We weren't reading Jean Reese. Uh-huh. That would have been fantastic. Uh-huh. Writers who actually engage whiteness as a historical performance. That would have been great. Sure. No, we were reading like some put you to sleep and don't wake up ever worker kind of text, you know, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And so to come across that anthology, like I remember finding it in my parent in the garage on a bookshelf going, what is this? And just knowing poetry and Negro, two words that I didn't get to read often. (laughs) Were you reading poetry at school at all? No, I mean, yes, but like, you know, boring, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Children's nursery rhymes, Mm -hmm. not real poetry, which is, part of why it shook me so mm-hmm. and the thing I mean I remember was that was the first day I read uh, this canonical poem called For My People mm-hmm. by Margaret Walker and it's rhymed and it's uh, it's very lyrical and it's full on adoration mm-hmm. for black culture mm-hmm. and it stunned me to the bottom of my really? soles of my feet like because English was a site of terror the language itself was a side of terror. I mean, at that point, right, you could look in a dictionary under black, you still can. And everything under that is dangerous, murderous, mm. violent, ugly, horrific, other, mm. and then Negro. Mm. And as a child, we would look at the dictionary, and that's what we would find, mm. you know? And so to have someone talking about blackness as a beautiful kind of sight of mm-hmm. experience blew I mean it just it blew my head off wow. like I didn't know that you could use English to adore <gasps> black people oh that gives me goosebumps do you know what yeah. I mean like it's a very weird thing in terms of like social indoctrination or you know 
Franz Fanon, decolonizing the mind and all that. But it's true, like English up until that point for me was very much uh, a place in my psyche and, and, you know, where I was subjugated and and my culture was subjugated and my family was subjugated. We weren't real, Mm. you know, and the dictionary told me so all the time and the literature told me so mm. and so to come across this anthology where there are always poems about black people everywhere literally in the world and I'll talk about that in a second mm-hmm. it, it just you know I had a secret mm. you know from then on I had a secret and it was that English could be my language you it's know fascinating that's so so interesting I, I never it, it, as a white girl you don't think about how English can be colonized well but of course not because you're being colonized by it too yeah you're being colonized not to ever think about it yeah right inoculated against it we're all being colonized by it right that's what that's that's the real story right you know did you do you remember sharing the discovery either with your parents or anybody was it a private not at all it was totally private right you know, I maybe talked to my dad about it because my father liked Langston Hughes. My father loved to make up silly, funny, sometimes naughty poems. Oh, so he loved Langston right. Hughes. Right. <laughs> so, you know, he was hilarious. So I'm sure I remember talking to him about Langston Hughes because Langston Hughes, sorry, Langston Hughes liked to rhyme too. Mm-hmm. And, and so my father, he very much appreciated those. Um, yeah, but listen, years later, while I was doing my PhD at USC, mm-hmm. um, I had to pick a book to talk about from the Harlem Renaissance, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and I picked this book, not having read it for decades, uh-huh. and see, here we are again with opening a book, and it becomes a different book, and this time, I'm really interested in editors and what editors do, much more than writers um, and kind of production histories of books. And this time, what I saw blew me away. Mm. And that is, is that Langston Hughes and Aaron Bonton were some of the most brilliant editors of black poetry that have ever worked on an anthology. I maintain that the work that they did on that book was more progressive than any anthology I've ever read since. Fascinating. Say more. It's Why? international. Let's just start there, right? Mm-hmm. American anthologies are incredibly insular. So are English to be to be to to, so are English. to help you out with that, yeah. Yeah, but we're a part of the okay, so but, but, you but know, I mean an English anthology. That anthology has people from the Caribbean, mm-hmm. has people from the UK. Mm-hmm. This is night what year was it published? Thirty two was it? Uh, uh, no, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean they have white people. It's kind of like this chapter that's kind of like friends of blacks. Is that what they call it? They call it. They call it tributary poems by non-Negroes. Yes, <laughs> I mean most of it. I was fascinated. Isn't it amazing? And it's the whitest, whitest right. men in the world. I have, it's I have the edition, and I'm going to show it to you. It's not here. It's at my other Barrett place. Browning, exactly. Whitman. Check it out. Check that out. That is all in that Bring book. It. Yeah, I was. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. So I ended up writing this paper basically on the kind of internationalist rigor mm-hmm. of Langston Hughes and Aaron Bontemps mm-hmm. in canonizing African-American poetry mm. and how ahead of their time to where you can't find that in any anthology now. Really? No, not at all. So anyway, that made me really happy. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. How fun. And did, did in... Um, in doing that paper, did you discover other than how fun and you know how amazing mm. the international they were? Was there 
was there another discovery other than that or was there a discovery of how much you'd matured was there oh yeah I mean I mean of, of course other than sort of obvious yeah no but I read as a I read as a writer now mm. And and I think I, I secretly harbor some desire to edit more than I, ha- I was harbor say, to write. I love editing. Would you, would, you, oh. you with such strong opinions about anthologies, this seems like I something you... I would kill to edit. I would like to edit writers, books. No, I read novels and I go... Well? No, no. <laughs> I read novels and I go, oh, I wish I could have edited this book. I mean, who has that desire? No, you have to be a real geek to fill that, you know? And I, I'm listening to that. I have that desire much more than I have, I, I feel like, writing a poem. Really? I love editing. I think it's a... I mean, it's kind of like directing mm-hmm. a film. Sure. You know? It's like, you can do so much. Right. You can do so much. Right. Um, and the design... I mean, this is totally separate, but book design and all of that, it, it all matters so much. Yes. And I'm lucky because I'm with Knopf. You know, Knopf has an uh, incredible reputation of allowing its authors to be very much involved in the book's production. Mm-hmm. And so I was involved in a lot of my book, book's design, mm-hmm. and, you know, that was, that was extraordinary. But in any case, so about the anthology, um, the other thing that I notice now reading it is just how extraordinarily talented the work is. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, it's interesting to me to watch the same tool, which is English, mm-hmm. in the hands of a different writer. Mm-hmm. And from generation to generation, because there's multiple generations mm-hmm. in that anthology, and um, from country to country, mm-hmm. um, and topic to topic, mm-hmm. and to watch what they're doing, say, within Jam and, and their verbs. I'm a craft head. To, mm-hmm. I'm such a craft head. Right? And so, formally, I'm, I'm, I'm watching them. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm I get to sit over their shoulder and watch them at their desk right. and go, well, that's interesting what you're doing with that comma, Langston. Right. Yeah. Check you out. Sure. You know? yeah. yeah. But of course, I mean, form is, form is palpably everything to you, yeah, given, absolutely. given how absolutely. Venus has come about it and, really and what is. that is. Yeah. Um, did this create a, clearly a love of poetry or a sort of reverence or newness for it? At what point did you start writing? So that's so interesting. So supposedly I started writing poetry as a child, but I have no memory of it. Oh, interesting. And I started writing poetry as an adult after I had a really bad accident Mm. um, where I hurt my brain. I fell through an open hole um, into another floor. And so I have permanent brain damage. And At what what age? Oh, 16 years ago. So 36. I was 36. And I was a professor at the time. I was teaching literature mm-hmm. and fiction. And um, the, long, the long story short is I couldn't write. I was in braces. I was in traction. Mm-hmm. My brain was jacked up. I couldn't remember my name. I couldn't remember my partner's name. I couldn't remember anything. It was just a mess for a long, long time. Um, and so my doctors told me that I could. And reading made me sick. And writing made me sick. I couldn't even hold a pen anyway, but I couldn't do it. And so my doctors told me you can read and write one line a day because I would get really, really sick. Like I would try to read or sometimes I would get really furious and I would read anyway a whole page and then I'd end up sleeping for three or four days. Really? Yeah, it was horrible. It was a, it was, it was a horrible but very interesting time about the body. How long did that last? That know? super hypersensitivity? Yeah. About three years. Oh, I still have it, maybe longer. Lord. 
Yeah, maybe longer. It, it, it goes and comes in waves if I do too much. Like right now, my face is numb because we've been talking straight on and I'm really? trying to think about numbers and history. You I don't say want to when stop. You need to turn no, no, no. Up I'm so used to it. Okay. I, I'm so used to it. Okay. But thank you. Um, and so when I started, I started writing poetry then because they were like one line a day. And I got so frustrated that I was like, how can I make this line? work over time mm. you know not instead of saying I'm going to the beach how can I put like how can I condense just mm, yeah you know and so the poem in my book read all over that same uh-huh. poem it was the poem that's the poem I first wrote after my accident really and it took me six months and that's all I did in bed you know like that that's all I did wow. lying in bed in traction or I would go to the I, I was in super 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 physical therapy five days a week and I would you know go and then come home and then just couldn't move so I would just sit there thinking there's a great movie that I love that Javier Bardem is in I think it's called The Big C I don't know it no. it's fantastic mm. he um, I really admire his acting and he uh, plays uh, the role of a man who had, like me, uh, an accident. He dove into some water and hit oh, his yes, head. Oh, yes. The, uh, the Big bus- Sea, maybe? No, I think it's called the... Uh, well, it was the book, was The Diving Bell. No, no, no. That's no, another that book. One. I oh, love that book. Yes. No, I love that, that book. Yes. Um, no, this is one. And anyway, the guy had a spinal cord injury and he was paralyzed from his neck down. And the reason why... that That's, you know, pretty cool titty and sadly. Mm. But... Um, the reason why this was made into a film is it's the first case where uh, Spain uh, allowed for a person to decide the moment of their death. Right. Um, and so he, his friends, he orchestrates, his, he convinces his friends to orchestrate to self-deliver, mm. and he does. Mm. And it's just such a phenomenal uh, Movie and now I forgot the whole reason why I'm telling you this. What were we talking about? We were talking about um, the uh, you being able to read only for a certain amount of, of time, right? Or what you had to limit it to, and what you would choose to do, and right. So I remember watching that film mm-hmm. for support, Diving Bell and Butterfly. Certainly, sure. um, very much relate to it. Thankfully, you know, my hand started working again, and my uh, physical therapist would tape. Uh, pins in my hand so I could write. Really? God bless them. God bless them for understanding. Wow. Yeah. And so, and then poetry um, had previously been, and leading up to that, had been there. You'd just been teaching? No. I wasn't teaching poetry. I wasn't even reading poetry. Really? No. I remember a friend of mine showed me Yusef Komenyapa's Venus's Flytrap and being stunned. Like, wow. I didn't know you could do that. Again, wow. it's always that. I didn't uh-huh. know you could do that. Uh-huh. Like when Spike Lee's films first came out, I was like, I didn't know you could do that. Right. 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 I didn't know you could do that. Right. Um, and so I started, I mean, I wasn't trying to write poetry. I was trying to fucking not die. Right. That's what I was trying to do. I was trying not to die and I was trying not to kill myself. You see, that gives me goosebumps too. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's like there I was in bed and they were telling me I would never read again, write again, teach again. I couldn't have a child. I couldn't do anything. My career, not over, not only did I have to like stop teaching at Hampshire College, which is where I was teaching, a fantastic college, but I had to stop teaching, period. Right. Which is one of my big vocations, more than being a writer, I think. I love teaching. And, uh... And here you are with the National Book Award. I <laughs> Suck it. Fucking suck it. 
take my book back to the doctors and go, hi. Have you not? Hi. What else should I do? Should we not? Tell me I should not do something. Because of wolves? Yeah, yeah. But it says, I mean, you know, I don't know. There's a part of me that I'm deeply suspicious. It's like, Robin, you know, you could have just done it without <laughs> it having to be revenge. And you, you know? better... <laughs> Better motivation. I sort of secretly wish someone would tell me that everything was going to go away, just so I could go and overachieve. You know, it is. I. I, It is very inspiring to be told no. Yeah. Especially when you feel nothing but yes in your psyche, it is very inspiring. I've learned it's. It's dark. It's tricky. You, it's easy to fall off in any direction, right. but if you can stay on that tight wire, it can be a gift. I'm I'm really struck by that story of yours, and and also when I think marry it to my experience of reading Venus, I think I I think of that T. S. Eliot quote: "These fragments I have shored against oh, my ruins." Absolutely, and I feel like right. that's. Uh, right. That's what this seems to oh, be. Oh, absolutely. Extraordinary. Well, you know, I tell people all the time, though they don't take me seriously, that this is a book about brain damage and this is a book about single motherhood. Mm. You know, it looks like it's about this other thing. Sure. But in actuality, in fact, what I'm working on now is uh, writing an essay about poetry as a prosthetic for huh. brain damage. Oh, wow. Right? Since we don't have ways of propping the brain up. Uh huh. You know? Um, I can't wait to read that. We'll see. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and fragmentation, you know, is, for me, the place of profound strength. It has to be. I'm black. Right. Come on. Right. You know, and I don't choose in any way to think of that as any kind of lack or tragedy. It's a fantastic thing that we're scattered all over the world. Mm-hmm. It's a fan. I mean, it's not fantastic how we got scattered sure. all over the world. Sure. But the fact that we are, and look what we're doing all over the world, mm-hmm. it's brilliant. And so for me, you know, diaspora, this notion of being scattered or broken or what have you, you know, it's a side of strength and complete richness right. as opposed to, oh, I'm so sad right. we don't have a home. It's like, no, I have a home. The whole world is my home now. Yeah. I, I completely have a home. Right. Where, where don't I belong? I belong everywhere. Right. Do you know? Yeah. But that took a lot of therapy. Right. Right. <laughs> it took a lot of therapy and a lot of writing uh-huh. and a lot of reading to get to. And I'm very thankful for all the people who have been reading and writing for decades, if not centuries, to get us to this moment where we don't, you know, knee-jerk bend down to the tragic idea of history. No, that's some story they told us to keep us subjugated for sure. a long, long time. Sure. We don't have to do that. The um, Well, that's interesting because that takes me to your last book, but I want to stay in the order that you gave okay. it to me. So the one next one you gave me is The Black Stallion yes. by Walter Farley, which was published in 1940. Two animals, a bull and a horse. I'm so happy. But I'm fascinated because you tell me how interior you are and how not outdoorsy you were. It sounds to me like these are two books that your brothers or sisters might have put, not, not perhaps Ferdinand, but talk to me about this book that about is about ostensibly... Oh, the most famous horse in the world. I know. I love him so much. Tell me. Tell me about him. Well, you know, I'm so surprised by the list I gave you. I can't believe I said all this stuff. It's like it's the most personal, private secrets for me. These are wonderful. Um, Thank you. Oh, the Black Stallion. I mean, what's not to love? There's a kid (laughs) stranded on an island with a horse 
who is completely wild and they fall madly in best friend love. Uh-huh. Isn't that every child's fantasy? Yeah, I don't know. I don't but was it yours and not mine? It, it wasn't mine. I didn't know it was mine uh-huh. until I read it and then I became a horse crazy. Did you? Oh, absolutely. I wrote for years. Yeah. Did you? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to get... Well, see, this is the thing you people don't know about Compton, and they don't also don't, don't know it about the South Bay. There used to be... In fact, my old stable is now uh, a beautiful condominium complex, but there used to be tons of stables no. all around Compton and Carson and Gardena. Absolutely. I wrote every day in high school. No every way. single day after school I was writing. Yeah. Yeah, I miss it. I miss it so, so much. So not as out, not as indoorsy as you, as you. I mean, look, yourself. I I would rather go ride a horse than go than read a book than be in drill team. Okay, okay, that's that's that was the difference. Adjustment. I see. Do okay. you see what I mean? Yeah. Like all of my friends were in drill team or cheerleaders. I was a majorette, but they were all like you know. You were a majorette. I was a majorette, but, <laughs> but they were you know, and they were like boy crazy and oh. So here's the thing. I forget. I was skipped two grades, uh. so I was. 12 mm. in 10th grade. Is that true? 14, wow. 15, 16, 17? I was either 12 or 13 in 10th grade. And how old, just talk me through the grades, how old is everyone else in 10th grade? 15? Two, yeah. So that was the other thing. I was a, we- I was a weirdo, right? Yeah. And, 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 and everybody and, knew that I had been skipped two grades and I was young and I was flat chested and my siblings were there. I mean, it was horrible. But also completely out of beat with what's happening hormonally with everybody Absolutely. Else. Absolutely. Like, you know, we go, I would go in the locker room and the girls would have on bras and I would have on a t-shirt. It was so sweet. It was awful. So the horses were a good play. They were another escape then. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, so that book and uh, that horse, he's still running around my psyche. I'm actually writing about him right now, too. Are you? Yeah. In the same essay or a different one? Same essay. Really? Yeah. I'm even more intrigued. Yeah. But yeah, what's not to like? Tell me about um, Tar Baby, which is your next book. Tar Baby, which is Toni Morrison's, I think, let me see, Blue Aside, Sula Song Solomon, maybe her fourth novel. 1981 it was published. Yeah, it was published in 81. I think it's her fourth novel, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was the first novel I ever read by her. Mm. I didn't even know about Toni Morrison, and uh, I was 16, 15, 16 or 15, because at the same time, right, that I'm like in high school and I'm too young to be in, in high school. They don't sure. skip kids like that anymore. Thank no. God. Um, and we used to go nightclubbing in L.A. And so I would take my sister's driver's license and go into this club. Uh-huh. And I was dancing with this woman. And she's like, hey, Toni Morrison's going to be at UCLA this Friday. And I'm like, who's he? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> It was, I think it was a date, and I was too young to be going out on a date, period, and... Classy date, too, let's start with that. Total like classy, classy date. date. Total classy date. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really couldn't be more than 16. Right. And Toni Morrison walked in the room. Oh. I will never... I know... I can tell you exactly what she had on. The thing that was most impressive she had on these still-toe-covered five-inch pumps that were to die for. <laughs> and then she started reading Tar Baby, and I was like, What? the hell is going on what is happening wait a minute again English I didn't know English could do that Mm. I didn't know you could do this wait a minute 
And I bought the book and I went home and I read it completely in one night. Wow. Just the whole thing. And by the next day, I was a completely different person. Really? I woke up a completely different person and it sealed my fate. I was like, I already had said I wanted to be a writer as a child. I always knew it. But that, at that moment, I was like, I'm going to be a writer. Mm. So help me God, I'm going to be a writer. Wow. And I knew it. And I just couldn't believe the things that she had done. And I was in AP English at the time. We never, ever got to read black writers. Not ever. Mm -hmm. Never, ever, ever, ever was assigned mm -hmm. a black writer, Asian writer, Latino writer, First Nation writer. The only women we got to read were women who killed themselves. <laughs> I mean, no, seriously. But seriously, I'm serious. Or Emily Dickinson. So it was Emily Dickinson, Sylvia Plath, and Sexton. I mean, that's it. Okay. Yeah, good. Good times. Yeah. The messages we sent, we were sending children, the indoctrination that was happening pedagogically was insane. Can I tell you something that's interesting is that this is my 12th podcast and you are the first person to have picked writers of color. Well, there you go. Which I think tells you everything. And these are, these are not uneducated people. No, I know. These are, no, and, I know. And I just, for interest... Uh, had my producer interview me to do mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. because I wanted okay. to know what it was to be in the hot seat and Great. I wanted to actually sit down myself and think about Fantastic. what Fantastic. I think of myself as someone who is um, educated within an inch of my life and, and, and uh, fairly thoroughly and I picked five white men mm -hmm. and I did not realize it until afterwards. Isn't it fascinating? And I said to my husband at dinner last night, I, I want to go and do I want to do it. Mm -hmm. I want to, but right. I can't right. because I honestly, right. honestly answered my own question. I understand. And I, I, I can't, un, I can't, I, I can wish it were other, mm -hmm. but I can't undo what was done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and the way I was taught to read right. and I have had to teach myself to go and find authors of right. um, with you I don't like right. the word either but of mm -hmm. diversity mm -hmm. I'm half Argentine my mm -hmm. father was from Buenos Aires mm -hmm. so the, the Latin Americans were more represented for me and I that's great bilingual so I, mm -hmm. I speak that but even then Garcia Marquez didn't mm -hmm. make the fucking cut like it, it just didn't how fascinating occur to me and it's and I think that's sort of part of my education mm -hmm. part of what was so wonderful mm -hmm. there are many wonderful things about mm -hmm. sitting here with you but mm -hmm. part of Thank it you. was getting this list and being like I don't know these works mm -hmm. I know Toni Morrison I know Beloved but mm -hmm. I know the you know what it, like mm -hmm. I don't I don't know Tar Baby I'm gonna mm -hmm. go read Tar Baby oh you're gonna now, love now it. that you told me you're gonna love it the other thing that I loved was because I didn't know it I wanted to read a little about what she had talked about it mm -hmm. and I found this lovely quote that I wanted to share with you you probably know it but where Mar uh, Toni Morrison said, Tar Baby is also a name that white people call black children, mm -hmm. black girls, as I recall. At one time, a tar pit was a holy place, at least an important place, because tar was used to build things. It held things together like Moses' little boats and the pyramids. For me, the Tar Baby came to mean the black woman who can hold things together. Yes. And She's extraordinary. I just... I just loved that. I loved the yeah. elevation of tar to, to something holy. Absolutely. And this this sort of potentially crude nickname into something so the opposite. Just what you well, were saying. Well, right. I mean, no. It was... No, to be called a tar baby is to be called something horrible, especially if it's coming out of the mouth of a white person. Right, right. But that book... I mean, so here's the thing about this book. And when I say that things, uh, why they're my favorite books, this book is, I think, one of her best books of all. Oh, uh, Cornel West and I have agreed about this several times. <laughs> um, because craft-wise, it's her breakthrough mm -hmm. book. I mean, 
sure, the historical and political things that she's exploring, without doubt. I mean, it's Toni Morrison, come on, you know. But craft-wise, she just stretches English. And if you can somehow contextualize 1981 again for yourself and realize how novels were being written at this time, then you could understand really its historical significance that people never talked about because they're interested in the political and the historical, right? Mm -hmm. The history of tar and all that. But craft-wise, what she's doing, I mean, she gets rid of quotation marks, Mm. right? She, you can see, I mean, Toni Morrison is what used to, I don't know if she still does, avid reader of African novels mm. from all several countries. She talks about it like Kamara Lay, the, the Radiance of a King, I mean, you name it. Mm. And she was the editor for Random House also right. for many, many, many decades. So you can see all of her actual um, kind of aesthetic being acted out through English in this book. Mm -hmm. And then the characters are primarily middle class black people and upper class white people Mm -hmm. in a villa in the Caribbean, in the French Caribbean I think. Right. When when was the last time there was a black novel American novel set outside of the US? I mean in 1981 now people were doing it. I mean so it was just a harbinger Mm -hmm. of things to come in literature way before its time. And then one of the protagonists uh, is an African-American middle-class girl who models in Paris. Mm -hmm. And she gets the cover of Elle. Um, And the way that Morrison writes about it and writes about her and writes about middle-class, black, female kind of interiority. Mm -hmm. Without, you know, this is Morrison's Mm -hmm. always been her gift. Without kind of entertaining the reader and definitely not entertaining the white reader right right yeah. there it's just such an interior book yeah. i um, can't wait i can't wait yeah it changed I'm really, me i'm fascinated too because i started americana on mm-hmm. recommendation of someone else that mm-hmm. i interviewed and i began it and i found myself drawn in totally and unable to finish it mm-hmm. and there was something mm-hmm. I, I haven't been able to put my finger on i haven't on read it is. yet i've been dying to it's read it's it. it's it's wonderful. It's mm-hmm. beautifully mm-hmm. written. It's be- you're yeah. in the hands of you, you. You relax in that way that you do when you're with someone mm-hmm. who really knows what they're doing yeah. with prose. Yeah. And this is and this is proper literary fiction. There is yeah. nothing glib about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and yet, and I, I can't tell you what my. I will go back to it. I yeah. will come back to yeah. it. But I'm I'm curious because I'm, I'm curious for myself because yeah, I was thinking about it as you were talking about that and what Toni Morrison does so beautifully as mm-hmm. you say is, mm-hmm. is this refusal to um, cater mm-hmm. to to, uh, to patronize mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. there's an assumption that you will meet her right. where she is Absolutely. on the page Absolutely. And, and I'm wondering if that's what I feel in some inchoate way is what's missing mm-hmm. in Americana I oh, don't I wonder. Know, so I'll have to I wonder I'll, I'll pursue I, I've only read the first two novels which I love uh-huh. Uh, uh, Purple Hibiscus and I forget the title the yellow will you please cut this I don't remember the, the yellow something or the other it's really they're just both okay. well, fantastic I'll get, books I'll try them again yeah um, and then what's the other one your last book is Their Eyes Were Watching God oh man <laughs> which was published in 1937 oh my god have you read it I have not read this do yourself and everyone you know a favor alright I will I will it's they one both, of the best, they both best, best 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 novels anywhere 
in the world at any time period ever written. Okay, well done, there's the recommendation. It really is. And, you know, I mean, this is the thing that that I, this is why I think that people, we don't read broadly enough, Mm -hmm. um, is that people think, you know, well, the protagonist is a black woman, blah, 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 and then they don't read it. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, you're a dumbass. Right. You know, first of all, that's not the point of the book. But second of all... What? Right. I mean, like... (laughs) You know, sometimes my reading practice will be I will only read books for the whole year from one country. Really? I've done that before. Oh, wow. Sometimes it's been I will never read a book Uh from that country. (laughs) Right. You know, so those kind of reading practices, you know, and so maybe, you know, you can just read books by black women for a year. It's like, I mean, you're a different person at the end. Sure. Okay. Having said that, their eyes were watching God. Oh, my God. First of all, Zora Neale Hurston. What can you say about her? Genius. Mm. Anthropologist. Mm. Studied with Franz Boas. Incredible scholar. Get in her car and go trucking through the South. Mm. Recording. Uh, making films. Oh my God, now I'm getting chill bumps. Right? Doing ethnography. You know, she was completely committed to documenting black culture before anybody even realized we had a culture. Right. Right. Or cultures, I should say. Mm -hmm. She was, right, so that's very important. Mm -hmm. She was early on one of the uh, first kind of anthropologists who were like, hello, black people are not homogeneous. Come Mm -hmm. on. Like, there are lots of diversity all over the place, and I'm going to document it. Mm -hmm. So that was who she was. Mm -hmm. In the middle of this, she writes this novel. It takes her six weeks. I hate her. No. Six weeks to no. write. She she locked herself up in a room and wrote it in six weeks. After a, a love affair, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And or love affair that broke broken her heart. Yeah, totally. And I don't want to. I don't even want to be a spoiler of any okay. kind. The only thing I will say is this: it's a modernist text. Mm. People. I have just started in the last couple of decades to talk about it in that way. Mm-hmm. She writes about, she writes in a vernacular. The vernacular will take you a minute to get used to. Mm-hmm. Once you get used to, you will wonder why you have never <laughs> seen sure. such a gorgeous language. Mm. Why you've never seen English been mm. so beautifully and mm. warmly and softly to tell a story of like redemption mm. and friendship and but isn't that the joy of reading something? I mean, I, I, I remember feeling that when I read Juno Diaz for the first time and mm-hmm. thinking, oh, how lovely. It was like a warm bath because I, yeah. because I do speak Spanish, so the hybrid yeah. didn't, didn't bother me. But yeah. even with Spanish in me, it still took that moment of going, yeah. look how plastic language yes. is. Look Absolutely. how wonderful. English. Mm. Or did you read it in Spanish or no, English? No, I read it in English. Right. Because, look yeah, how plastic English can yes. be. And when writers can do that to English, which is such... Is not a, a language that lends itself to that kind of manipulation. Mm. So when a writer can pull it off, mm. it's fantastic. Right. Zora Neale was one of the first to do that in right. America, right? right? In, in novel form. Sure. And that she does it in the mouth of black people, mm. and, the, and in particular the mouth of a black woman. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I mean, and, and, and it's not one of these, you know, like Zora Neale Hurston... She did not give a flying fook about what anybody thought, mm-hmm. white, black, or polka dot. Uh-huh. She just does not care. Right. And, but she was completely devoted to kind of recording her historical moment, mm-hmm. and, and particularly black culture in historical moment. And so 
you don't get this like American literary agenda of a novel that's let's pull ourselves up from our bootstraps kind of a story. Sure. It's not that at all. Yeah. You get a woman who is passionate and and wants to be completely alive yeah. regardless of what history is doing all around her. Right. That was what that was what I loved when I was sort of reading about her was she this she used this phrase that I was really struck by this refusal to subscribe to what she called the sobbing school <laughs> negrohood. And I just felt <laughs> that is the word for you. There you Wait, go. Wait, say again. She refused to subscribe to, to the, so- she, the sobbing school of Negro. That's Laura. And I was like, that alone is a magnificent phrase. And then do yourselves a favor and read, you read her letters that are published, her collected uh-huh. letters, and they are you will just laugh hysterically. I tell you, I'm driving from here to Skylight Books. Oh, I really yeah, am. I just no, want to yeah, get one. Absolutely. Tell me, um, when you read this, do you remember for the first time? It had to have been in college, at Hampshire College. I, I went there and then went back to teach about 10, 15 years later. Um, I, w- I would think it wasn't high school for sure, no way, because high school was not pretty. Right. So it had to have been college. College for me was extraordinary, because mm-hmm. I went. I studied with all these uh, feminist scholars who were giving me, like, Paul Eluard and Franz Fanon and oh, Noël wow. Sadawi and Jacques Derrida. and wow. Right? I mean... To Mind come blurry. from high school where you're not reading any people of color and even the white people you're reading are as dumb as a doorknob, <laughs> right? To go to Hampshire College and to be just assumed to be smart, mm-hmm. assumed to be interested in the work that they're giving us. I mean, you know, I read people, oh my God, the James Baldwin taught at my school when I went there. Yeah. It was just an extraordinary, it followed my, I mean, I could just, you just... Margaret Cirillo, Fran White. I mean, it was an extra Hanif Karishi. I mean, it was a crazy time. Stuart Hall would come and hang out on the lawn. Wow. You know, it was a really amazing time. Yeah. So I'm, I know I read her in those years. I don't remember in which class. Mm-hmm. But I remember being, again, like the Tar Baby moment, just taken. Mm-hmm. Taken. Robin, these are just glorious books, oh, and it's glad. been so fun talking to you. I have a, 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 I had a few follow-up questions, but I'm going sure. to limit them to two. Okay. Um, what is on your nightstand at the moment? Oh, here I pulled them out. But see, I hate to tell you what's on my nightstand because it feels like that moment when my brothers and sisters are like, come out and play, and I'm like, I'm going to stay inside and read. Can you not, please? Can you just relax but, on it? My, on my but, nightstand, I want to tell you currently is a recipe book, a book on how to get your fucking two-year-old to stop being a fucking two-year-old, <laughs> and and then like three uh, Americana. I mean, you know. So that, okay, but still. Go so, so here's the one that I um and I haven't read yet it's the life of uh it's called jane crow the life of Polly murray mm-hmm. uh incredible activist incredible lawyer incredible human being they just renamed a building at yale after her oh. which is huge wow um and she was also a theologian so it it's really um, hard to go through divinity school or to be in any way uh, interested in American history and not know who she is. And so that just came out, and I'm really excited to read it. I'm waiting until I can find a really quiet moment. Mm-hmm. Does reading still tax you? Does it? Does it? Oh God, yes. Really? Yeah, I have all these different tools that help me be uh-huh. able to be able to read without getting sick. Um, this book I've read many times. Um, Have you read it? I um, loved it. So this is On Being Ill by Virginia Woolf, published by the magnificent Paris Press. Um, the Paris Press does lost works primarily by 
women writers, and their list is extraordinary. That's wonderful. This came out, I think, in the 80s, I want to say, was reissued in the 80s, and it has an introduction by Hermione Lee that's also fantastic. She's a beloved writer. Yeah, I love her. Yeah, me too. Um, And a great editor, too. I love this book because Virginia Woolf, uh, and I'm rereading it uh, for obvious reasons, but also because Virginia Woolf is so funny and so dark and so... uh, accusing mm. of uh, writers for not doing our jobs mm. and in particular writing about illness in a mm. way that isn't like the tragic memoir mm-hmm. but a, a very serious subject that w- needs to be explored in terms of like mortality and existentialism mm-hmm. and what is the meaning of life and mm-hmm. control and desire she's just a genius can never go wrong with her no. I'm rereading Langston Hughes' The Big C, oh, um, his autobiography with the introduction by Arnold Rampersad, because you can never go wrong with him. Because, But also, you know, it's really easy to think Langston Hughes is, uh, I think American, I, let me put it this way, I think American, the American canon dismisses Langston Hughes as being this poet of simplicity and not in a good way. But if you actually read all of his work when he wasn't trying to hide from the witch hunt mm. um, of a communist, mm. right? When you then you get to see his true complexity. He's mm. a genius. I love him, mm. and it's really great in that way to read autobiography because then you get to see who what they're really thinking about. Okay, this is the book I didn't want to show you, but it's called Greek Laughter: A Study of Cultural Psychology and uh, from Homer to Early Christianity. Okay, I love this already. This is actually the one I most want to duck out. Oh, really? That's so yeah. great. It's totally my kind of thing. Yeah. An integrated reading of ancient Greek attitudes to laughter. What a fabulous, Isn't it fabulous! fabulous I know, I'm so into it. <laughs> it's really good, and I'm reading it because I'm trying to trace the history of. Uh, visual representations of laughter or the smile, right? Because I'm working on, supposedly, I'm working on a book about black photography. My, when my grandmother died, I found a mother load of black photographs, of photographs of our family. And, uh, you know, for so many reasons, people don't start smiling in photographs into a certain moment historically. Partly it's te- uh, technology because you have to keep the aperture still, open, you have sure. to stay still. But even so, there's still this history of the performance of joy yeah. um, that I'm really interested in black photographs. So I'm reading this because I just want to know, you know, I go deep that's in history. That's so that's why I'm reading it. I can't it. wait to hear what that one's like. Yeah, it's really great. Um, so I have one last question, yes. which is almost impossible to answer, but yeah. I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. On your desert island, you may take one book. What is it? Sure, easy. Mahabharata. Oh, yeah. really? The real one, not the not the edited one. The unabridged 30-volume version. You're Only because it's so long! It's <laughs> cheating, but you're allowed it. That's cheating. It. it is, but it is. It's 30 volumes. Or, okay, so it's either that or the dictionary. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great big thing. The OED. Yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. No, that's a given. Whatever's the longest, that's what I want. Robin, it has been such a pleasure and an <laughs> my, honor. Thank you so, my, so much. Thank you. I'm honored. Thank you. That was Robin Cost-Lewis, and you've been listening to Bookish. I hope you've enjoyed this first season. It has been so much fun to make, and I'm already hard at work on season two. If you have any suggestions or ideas for future guests, people you'd love to hear on the show, or questions about books that you'd like answered, you can email me at info at bookish.net, or go to our website, bookish.net. 
I'll try and keep it updated with upcoming guests and when season two will be ready. Meantime, if you've enjoyed the show, please write a review if you haven't already. It really helps. And thank you for listening.